Hey guys, my name is Jordan Koss. Welcome to the Almost Essential Podcast. This 16-episode series is based off my final project for my Doctorate of Ministry degree at Fuller Theological Seminary. The title of that final project is Almost Essential Evangelists, Improving Retirement Asset Accumulation for Mainstream Church of Christ Pastors. In this series, we will interview eight different specialists in eight separate episodes. And we will also interview two pastors from each of eight different regions around the U.S. This final project was inspired by 10 years of ministry in three different churches of Christ from Georgia to Northern California from 2010 to 2019, as well as my time as a financial professional in training in 2020. That is where I learned about the retirement crisis America is in and will be experiencing in the coming years. Now, I have three goals for this podcast. One, provide an accessible, denomination-specific qualitative conversation for Church of Christ pastors and leaders. Two, introduce leaders and listeners to retirement vehicles and strategies they may not have heard about before. And three, provide encouragement, motivation, and knowledge to save for the last third of life. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Okay, guys, welcome. I believe this is uh, episode 14 of the Almost Essential Podcast. We are almost to the end, episode 14 of 16. Uh, we thank you uh, for tuning in, listening, and, and watching online. Uh, I believe we've got we published nine episodes so far. The latest one that was just published this morning on Spotify and Apple was our conversation with Pacific Northwest pastors, Chris and Jason. But uh, in this episode, we are talking to uh, two pastors from New England, the region of New England in our country. Uh, but first, uh, before we introduce them, Lars, say a few words about yourself. Yeah, uh, you know, I think one of the things that I love being in the Pacific Northwest is getting to talk to people on the other side of the country. And um, so I serve as director of university relations at Bushnell University, small Christian college um, with, a, with a heart for wisdom uh, centered on faith in Jesus Christ leading to lives of service. And some of the things I get to do are around institutional reputation and, and other things. But one of my favorite pieces is working with our church relations and pastors. Since I was a youth, uh, youth pastor for almost eight years in Southern California, uh, within the Churches of Christ, um, this discussion on on Church of Christ ministers and retirement is is really real for me. And uh, just the other day, was talking with some pastors, and they were asking me for some resources on um, finances and financial management, and even retirement came up. And so, I think this uh, could be kind of one of those things that we share with with our friends, um, and it's going to be really really helpful. So, thanks, Jordan, for getting this going and excited to be part of it yeah same thanks for being a part of it yourself man i uh when i was thinking of a co-host i was like i know who'd be perfect lars be perfect all right and so um our first uh pastor uh on this episode with us is is caleb caleb why don't you say a few words about yourself where you minister at etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah i'm um, caleb borchers uh i am the pastor and church planner at the feast church in providence rhode island uh, or the Feast of Church of Christ, whichever name is the better one for me to use at that particular <laughs> moment. But uh, yeah, the Feast Church, uh, we planted in 2015. 
So looking at our eighth birthday this year nice. and um, it's been a church that we really have tried to create a space um, for questions and doubt and for people to explore. One of our big things is just having conversations about faith instead of just talking at people about faith. And so, um, yeah, you could find out, you know, we've, we've got stuff online where, you know, YouTube and service every Sunday now and all that kind of stuff. So, but that's, uh, that's us. We've been here in new England, um, for, this is going to be our 13th year finishing out. So, uh, been here a little while. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for being a Longer part than of this most. episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eight years. And now were you planted with the help of Kairos? Yeah, we worked with Kairos church planning, um, did an apprenticeship for a little bit at a church called the Blackstone Valley Church of Christ in mm-hmm. Northwest, uh, Northeastern Rhode Island. There's not really too much directions to Rhode Island. It's, it's a small place, but yeah, we started there and then we came down into the city of Providence and um, live in a pretty, you know, urban environment and just love being here. So That's love great. to get to know people like Jeff too. Jeff and I are buddies. So I'm, I'm excited okay. to do this with him. I have, I have to admit, I've never been to New England myself. The farthest north, I believe I have been is Cooperstown, New York. Um, when I was 12 years old, I played in the first ever, first annual tournament there at the Cooperstown Dreams Park. Uh, and that was a lot of fun baseball wise. Um, but Jeff, uh, go ahead, introduce yourself to our listeners and viewers. I'm Jeff Pierpont. I was born and raised in the Churches of Christ, uh, graduated with a degree of Bible on the master's in education. I uh, served as a full-time minister uh, on the East Coast and in New England for 12 years. And I've been in banking for the last uh, 25 years. And I serve as an interim pastor for various churches and in the leadership of the congregation uh, here in Greensboro, Vermont. Okay, great. Awesome. Now I always see you always post pictures of your pond, your lake on uh, social media. And it's, I always get jealous uh, of the view you've got, no matter if it's like summer or winter and the pond's frozen or, or not. So that's an awesome view you got there. How long have you been living in that cabin? Uh, it's, uh, uh, 13, 13 years. Yeah. Okay. Uh, awesome. we had lived, I, I had lived here. Um, I'd lived in new England, uh, and then moved back to Ohio where I was born and raised and mm-hmm. lived in Ohio for, uh, 15 years and then moved back here, um, in 2009. Okay. Great, great, great. So guys, uh, why don't we go ahead and jump into the conversation. And the first thing I wanted to talk to you guys about, you were asked to read a s- short section of my paper, only about five pages worth, and it was on the Stone-Campbell movement hermeneutical factors that possibly played a role in uh, kind of inhibiting Church of Christ pastors from being able to accumulate assets for retirement very well. And I'm going to read a few things right now, and I want to get get your thoughts on, on those things and just kind of what jumped out to you the most when you went through it. But John Mark Hicks, you know, he wrote a book called Searching for the Pattern. Um, and uh, he talks about how the what he calls the blueprint hermeneutic adopted by Churches of Christ contributed to uh, the opposition of located and salaried pastors within Churches of Christ, especially in the non-institutional controversy of the mid-20th century. Uh, now, the, the blueprint hermeneutic uh, manifested itself in his experience in emphasizing the priesthood of all believers, 
uh, which typically meant men can only do stuff Sunday morning during worship service, uh, where, again, like he says, uh, any male, baptized male person of the congregation was able to participate in any uh, part of the assembly, and this included preaching, since he, quote, we did not see a clergy class in the New Testament. So in that ecclesiology, based upon the blueprint hermeneutic in his experience, evangelists, or what we're calling pastors, uh, should only be supported uh, monetarily to plant churches and evangelize and and then move on, uh, while also not inhibiting the work of the real pastors of the congregation, the elders, not serving as somewhat of an unofficial paid pastor or, or elder themselves, because then that would create conflict. Um, and that and did actually create conflict in the history of the movement ever since the first generation of churches. So, as you as you read that section, guys, like what stood out to you the most um, in in your mind in terms of how you've seen the blueprint hermeneutic play out in this regard, or just in, in general? What are your thoughts, Jeff? Or, I mean, or, I think, or... yeah, I think one of the things that's really interesting about this is, um, it certainly had a very huge effect for a long time. You know, even when I was maybe a kid, I still saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, one. One of the things I always struggle with a little bit as we talk about restoration movement is how much it matters today still. And I know there are corners where it does. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I mean, it's been, it's been at least 20 years since I've been in a church where anybody used command example, necessary inference to make any sort of argument. Right. Right. Now, and that's, I was in a college town where I was at a pretty progressive church I was in a graduate school at a pretty relatively progressive church. We planted something that's even beyond that in some ways, but I just, it's really fascinating. It hasn't impacted my life, but I know that across the movement it has, Sure. but, um, and that's certainly, it's really interesting as it connects to the colleges, right? Because like the closer you've been to sort of the Christian college world in churches of Christ, mm-hmm. I think the less this was effective. Cause mm-hmm. I remember the elder of my church in Searcy, like, teaching us in class against command example necessary inference so yeah, I know. certainly yeah. it wasn't like impacting that church that much but that doesn't mean it doesn't have roots right like it is other places and i'm sure there's places where guys wish they didn't have to deal with it and so mm-hmm. i think the thing that struck me most was there was a little comment uh, in that section as i remember that talked about how non-localized preachers were not there because of the inferences and then once they decided to have localized preachers, they were there because of the inferences. <laughs> yeah, that was my favorite Fascinating. <laughs> it's like the elasticity of our movement, but also the befuddlingness yeah. of it that, you know, there's, there's places where it's been a major hindrance and a place where it's been zero hindrance. It just kind of depends on like what path those folks kind of went down. I feel like. Yeah. I remember visiting a church before I actually went into full-time ministry. I drove up to some, town i can't remember was what it was outside of chicago illinois off of uh, i think interstate 80 or something like that and i walked in the door and i saw on the whiteboard that whoever was teaching that class was teaching cine command example necessary inference and i was like oh no <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah what do you think jeff well after reading this section i um i thought that yours or John Mark Hicks's analysis was pretty accurate. I think our hermeneutics has contributed to a lack of clarity around mm-hmm. located preachers and full-time pastors. Um, because while we had what could be called a, a blueprint hermeneutic, 
for church polity, there was no overarching church hierarchy to enforce it. Right. And so every congregation was sort of free to organize according to their understanding of what the real necessary inferences were. Exactly. Right. And that yeah. that varied that varied widely. Mm -hmm. um, in the last paragraph of that section, you write uh, the primitivistic blueprint hermeneutic has made for many made a located and salaried pastor uh, a conciliation to the exclusive pattern of the church. And if that was a conciliation, what of helping with retirement? Right. The other piece that I read that I saw after reading that or thought about after reading that statement was the fact that up until the generation just before me, I don't think um, that preachers thought about retirement uh as we understand it today yeah um it wasn't even a glimmer in most preachers minds um if if you were a preacher uh, you preached all of your life mm -hmm. you preached up until you worked with the church up until you were in the grave and i know a lot of guys that did just that that preached yeah. you know right up until they died and um I know a lot of guys that are doing that now because they you're, they don't have any other choice. Um, many of the preachers that I grew up hearing in the in the 70s and early 80s, you know, gave their entire life to the service of the Lord and His Church, and for them, that was their blueprint. You you mm -hmm. don't stop. You don't ever stop preaching. You just continue to work with the church, whatever church will have you, mm -hmm. and you just keep going. So. Um, I, I don't think that we as a church really started thinking about um, this idea of retirement until the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, it was certainly not a topic of Timothy Club meetings when I was <laughs> studying to be a preacher in college, right? Wow. Yeah. Nobody talked about this. Mm. It is still somewhat quite new, this concept of retirement, especially since the inception of Social Security in the 30s. But that wasn't the beginning of this kind of... Um, you know, what we call retirement. I don't know if you read any other, other sections, but the, in terms of history, the retirement kind of became a thing in the late 19th century um, instead of just beginning in the 30s. But still, yeah, it was still quite, it's still kind of a new concept to even think about it. But yeah, that that comment you mentioned, Jeff, at the end of that section is kind of like a call by Homer argument. I don't know if you guys ever took Hebrew, but the call by Homer argument is like, if this is so, then this is so as well. It's like, okay, if, if we're having a hard time with, with located and salary preachers, then how much more, if you will, are we going to have a hard time with retirement? Um, so another thing I wanted to mention um, to you guys, and uh, we've kind of already hit on it, but... Hicks ironically states that in his own experience, churches still employed full-time located salaried pastors evangelists, despite the blueprint hermeneutic. Um, how did they do that? And like we've mentioned, expediency through necessary inference. And we've all run into the expediency through necessary inference argument, maybe less so, like we're saying, in, in, in our more recent years that the churches we're with. Um but how funny it is that mainstream churches of Christ were the liberals in this regard in the mid 20th century and the non-institutional churches were the conservatives who stuck truly in this way to the blueprint hermeneutic. Um, thoughts on that? I just think it's weird the way practicality just plays into it, right? Like mm -hmm. I grew up in churches that were probably 
like theologically would have been more inclined towards that more conservative anti-institutional part mm-hmm. but like they just at some point broke because it was just too hard right you know like my mom always talks about my grandfather when there was like the um when there's like an orphanage debates you know like can we support orphanages he was like well we either have orphanages or i need to bring an orphan into my home and we're not in a position to be able to do that so i guess i have to have an orphanage like like that was the way the hermeneutic worked functionally mm. of you just got to do something and so i just think that we are seeing that some as well now like the you know mortality rate changing and you get people getting older and older and older longer lifespans um that necessitates us i think thinking about preachers some you know and the Mm -hmm. increased you know amount of dementia there is in the world like i think part of the argument when jeff said guys worked forever part of it too was what do i have to retire like the guy that works down at the you know the mill or at the the factory he's got to retire because his body lets out but I just get up every Sunday and speak. Why do I have to retire? Like, I don't, I, it's not get my body's not going to give out like that. But as we see now that like, you know, you do start to lose your fastball a little at some point and churches are probably a little more sensitive to guys losing a step cognitively, you know? And so the way that that just practically has forced churches of Christ to think about it, uh, you know, the necessity is the mother of invention kind of thing. Yeah. I think is probably part of this whole whole deal too. Yeah, necessity kind of forced again churches in the first gen Alexander's own generation to kind of shift gears based upon here's the ideal ecclesiological ordering of things in churches, and they're like, yeah, it doesn't work. Let's hire full time guys. Um, and then even like I mentioned, even Alexander Campbell came to reject the inferences that these radicalized or these churches that kind of radicalized his teachings or just kind of basically took his teachings on in the late 19th century and 20th century. And he's like, yeah, I don't think those are good inferences anymore. And he allied himself with other Protestant denominations and churches. And we've somehow, well, many churches of Christ, I guess, in the 20th century now have somehow forgotten that, or they're like, oh, he himself became senile. So we don't listen to old Alexander Campbell. We listen to young Alexander Campbell. Um, But here's another thing about the hermeneutic and get your thoughts on is that the Blueprint Hermeneutic according to Hicks created a hermeneutical crisis for Churches of Christ, right? We all heard about the hermeneutical crisis, which has contributed and is contributing, if you will, to the overall crisis of the fellowship, mainly because it just doesn't make sense, and you guys have noted that. It's like, man, we could end on opposite sides of the spectrum doing the same thing with this thing, right? Um, and this is a perfect example of it. Hicks states a primary problem of the blueprint hermeneutic is its heavy reliance on inference. And Thomas uh, Ulbricht mentions as well that inference is the modus operandi of COC hermeneutics. Again, and I'm going to mention the same thing that you mentioned, Jeff, that again was the, when I wrote this, it was like, it was kind of like, kind of like one of those, like, oh, I, I actually wrote that sentence. And it was the sentence that inference both led to the located salary pastor controversy, as well as to its resolution and acceptance. And again, this topic that we're talking about is like a perfect example of how the blueprint hermeneutic just creates crazy problems for churches. So what are your thoughts on that? Let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, you know, we look at things very differently than the way that, um, 
Campbell and others looked at things um, uh, 150 years ago. Um, and one of the ways that we look at things different is, is that we don't look at the book of Acts as a blueprint for how the church uh, should operate. But uh, the folks of that generation did. I mean, with, as they were looking at, uh, that they, as they were starting out on this new endeavor of, of trying to replicate God's church uh, here in the United States, they looked at the book of Acts and they said, you know, this is the model for the way the church would be. And then later on, um, the disciples of those teachers you know, sort of um, codified that even more. Um, You mentioned that, you know, after a while, Campbell's uh, followers, you know, rejected uh, his position. Um, I can't remember who said it, but they said that the the disciples of the discoverer become enemies of discovery. And Mm. and that's what happened um, with Campbell. Um, And so folks in, in the generations later on then codified uh, that and and that's how we got this idea of a blueprint. Uh, there has to be something we follow. Otherwise, everybody will be out there and everything will be willy nilly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people will be doing all kinds of strange things, and uh, so we can't have that. So we've got to have a blueprint, and we've got to have this idea of how um, the church should should operate. And so, consequently, uh, that's this very artificial way of understanding uh, how the church should behave in this world um, was then codified and developed into command, example, and necessary. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really, it's understandable, but it's, it, it, in my mind, it's really bizarre. Yeah. I, I think too, it's probably worth giving our, you know, brethren and sister credit a little bit in that I remember Monty Cox saying, Churches of Christ have always had a far more sophisticated hermeneutic than command example in this series inference. Right. It's like the only only thing you have to do is walk into a church on Sunday, and the fact that nobody comes up and lays a big wet kiss on your face, why does that happen? I mean, it's commanded. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That is an imperative. Yeah. And he goes, but I've never in America ever experienced that. And he said that's because all of those churches are able to make a more complex decision about what is cultural, what is not cultural, and the way that culture is filtered through, you know, the, the first century culture is filtered through 21st century culture, and we do things that are culturally appropriate, and that we can get to the meaning of that scripture, which is welcome one another warmly without being a slave to it. And he said, the fact that you're not kissed at every church of Christ shows that there actually is more than command example and necessary inference happening. But you're about to tell me about a church that kisses, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, of course there are. And here's the thing is, is that that, that only applies um, to certain things. I mean, we, yeah. uh, there are, um, and, and you've mentioned that, and it's true that around our universities, around Searcy and around Nashville and around um, that there is um, where, where you have educational institutions, you have more, uh, for lack of a better term, freedom. You have more understanding, and that leads to more freedom. But but you get out in the in the hinterlands. I mean, I preached for a little church in southeast Ohio called the Bear Wallow Church mm. of Christ. Wow! And it was on Bear Wallow Ridge, and it, it was just as primitive 
as mm. that name sounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, and you get out, you get out very far away, uh, anywhere in southeastern Ohio, West mm. Virginia, yeah. western Pennsylvania. You're in this area, the in this area, the eastern half of the country. You're going to run into mm. churches like that that still to this day firmly believe in command, example, and necessary inference, and they'll be the judge of what the inference is, right? You won't get to decide that. They'll be the judge of the inference. Right. I mean, you could run into that that over here on the West Coast, too. I'm sure Lars has plenty of examples for me. um, So out here, um, you can run into a church in Santa Cruz, California, that's like hardcore cine and then obviously 40 minute drive over the uh, highway 17 in the the south bay i mean you have a church it's very you know cine's not mentioned and you know women lead and there's instrumental worship and it's so it's like uh and then you get and then you can get out into the central valley and you can run into like a bear wallow church uh from southeastern ohio in the central valley uh, just as much, I think, as anywhere. But uh, Lars, what, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, well, just was spending some time actually with Richard Beck, uh, who's in town speaking at our university and, and got to spend time with him. And and he he and I were processing a little bit of this. Um, and I think in the Pacific Northwest and also then in the Northeast, there's a little bit of that you don't have the choice. You don't have the options that you might have in a um, metro center in the South or something to kind of uh, have a gradient scale of conservative to progressive or something. And so what ends up happening sometimes in some of these churches is the the progressives might go to other denominations. I know um, as we've opened up in the 80s and 90s and and different things to listen to other voices that also diminished our exclusiveness. And, and so I think that's part of what, you know, we're almost seeing a return to the early Stone Campbell movement where it was a little chaotic, you know, people were at the morning bench uh, barking like dogs and, and what happened was some rules to kind of give some shape. And that lasted for quite a while, but in, you know, really since the, the eighties, uh, churches of Christ have been starting to open up and listen to other voices. And that in Beck's mind, you know, as kind of Rubel Shelley and Mike Cope and others have uh, helped us, you know, imagine we can we can listen to these other voices. We can take from them some different things uh, that's actually diminished kind of our circle of wagons control. You know, we 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 can't experience that sameness as as we went from church to church. Um, and so I actually think this is another restoration movement, like the origins moment, like we're going back to actually what does hold us together. What does it mean to be Christians only and, uh, not the only Christians and actually believe that and not just say that and then talk about like, well, there's probably some people who in the Christian church who count, but like, you know, now you can find churches of Christ that are, uh, you know, run the gamut and, uh, and so I think that's that's a good place for us to be. Uh, but we also kind of need to stick with it. Like, I, I feel the pull uh, to not participate in the movement anymore. And yet um, I have a heart that I would love to to stay within it and to to be a voice that says we can we can 
still do this and live into that deeper hermeneutic that you were talking about, Caleb, um, that maybe was foundational, uh, but we let some rules, let some structures get in the way and drive some of our really creative minds. Um, that's what saddens me the most is when I see uh, people who are, you know, innovators in our movement who've left and are participating in something else. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, as I think about uh, command, uh, you know, necessary inference and all that stuff, it's like we're we're a long ways from that, even in my lifetime. Um you know, I'm 31 and I don't think that I ever heard a sermon on it. Right. But uh, what are some of the deeper hermeneutics that were maybe there at the beginning um, that we can get back to? And and so, you know, paying attention to that uh, with with regard to even the pastor controversies and some of those early controversies, we may be getting kind of close to uh that where we're not doing the debate thing where we're debating with the baptists you know but yeah. but we're we're having some of the controversies that campbell and stone had to have um as they helped shape the movement for what it actually what is the dna of mm -hmm. our movement now that some of these things like the blueprint hermeneutic aren't going to be um you know what we what we want yeah good stuff good stuff okay guys so um it's, I'm going to shift to the next question unless anybody had some follow-up thoughts to that. But uh, so question number two, and these are the kind of brief quantitative questions before jumping into the more qualitative questions for you guys. And um, if you're comfortable with sharing, um, what retirement vehicles are you currently utilizing? And ballpark, how much do you think you have saved for retirement uh, so far? Um, as you might guess, as a banker, I have a 401k <laughs> and I have a few, I have a few IRAs and I've been saving, uh, for the last 30 years. Um, awesome. and I started investing as soon as I was able to scrape together some money to do so. Awesome. And, and I'll, I have enough to retire comfortably. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. Caleb, what do you think? I'm thankful. I thought Jeff was going to necessarily dwarf me, but that was a very, very polite way to put that, Jeff. <laughs> so, um, no way, babe. <laughs> we've, so my wife and I um, have uh, two IRAs. One of them is a traditional because it was a 401k that she had from an employer that got rolled over. Yeah. And then what we use for our own is a Roth IRA. And so, you know, we're not 40 quite yet. We've mm -hmm. got about fifty thousand uh, dollars put away towards retirement, yeah. which we feel pretty decent about. Mm -hmm. um, one of the challenges for us is that we're doing kids college too, right? So yeah. we've managed to do about thirty k for our kids and five twenty nine plans. That's great. So yeah, those things together make us feel like we have not yet wasted totally where we're at. <laughs> um, and you know, another piece. I mean, it's it's a little thing, but. Um, you know, we're also homeowners oh, and we're great. down to only about 13 years left in the mortgage. Wow. So we took advantage of the low interest to, to refi mm. our 30 into a fifth, not 30 into 15, but 22 into 15 or something like that. And mm. so that has us, you know, we, we feel pretty good about that. We'll get the house paid for faster than some folks have been able to. So that's great. That's great. That's awesome. So thank you guys for being vulnerable and sharing that uh, information uh, 
about yourselves. And so based upon kind of like where you guys understand you are at in retirement, which for both of you, it's, it's two, two different places, um, just with, you know, age wise, um, to, Teresa Gilarducci in question three talks about the new class divide being one's level of retirement anxiety. All right. And so like, how would you, we've asked this question in every episode with pastors, how would you rate your level of retirement anxiety from one to 10, 10 being crazy, anxious, um, one being not very anxious, but how would you rate that in light of what Gilarducci talks about that we're in this retirement DIY retirement crisis right now? Yeah. I mean, I would say, I don't know, I'd be a three or a four. Like I'm just not naturally a very anxious person. And so um, at the very least, I don't find that being anxious about it makes it any better. So that's a piece of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also for better or worse, you know, I remember I went back and found it this week. Uh, I remember a podcast that uh, the 538 guys did about Mm -hmm. retirement. Interesting. And they, they referenced some longitudinal studies where they talked to people at different ages about retirement mm-hmm. and their findings were almost everyone 10 years before retirement is extremely anxious. Okay. And the vast majority after retirement go, Oh, this isn't nearly as bad as I thought it was <laughs> like, this is a very common thing. And there's a lot of debates about why some of it's social security kicking in and people not really appreciating what that is, but like uh, they were just showing that almost everybody, you know, like you get 80, 90%. Yes. I feel anxious when you talk to a 55 year old Mm -hmm. and then you talk to a 70 year old who's retired and you get like 60, 70% going, no, I live comfortably now. I'm okay. And so I've tried to use that to help give myself some perspective. Like you're always going to feel more anxious before it happens than you will afterwards. And so, I don't know. That's just something that always kind of has stuck to my brain. That's good. It's good. Jen, what do you think? Part of of the reason for that is, is that in the first few years after you retire, say the first five years, um, you obviously are going to be spending more money, um, more of your retirement money. But then um, because, uh, you know, uh, lifestyle changes and health changes, um, you're not, you know, when you first retire, you might take a trip or two, you know, to go see some things you might, you know, the biggest mistake that retirees make is they buy RVs. That is a huge, oh. you know, expense that is not, you know, it, it's a depreciating item. And right. so it, it costs a lot to operate them. It costs a lot to buy them. So uh, lots of times retirees, that's, I think that is listed as the number one mistake retirees make oh, wow. buying an RV. Um, yeah, it's, it's crazy, Bummer. but your, your expenses, your expenses go down, you know, the older you get, you don't need, um, you, you know, your house is generally paid for your utilities are minimal. Your kids are gone. There's just the two of you. And so you don't spend as much. Mm-hmm. And so then when you forecast out, then what you've saved, uh, over, you know, what the stock market does over an average of 30 years, you realize that, you know, you're probably not going to run out of money unless you just haven't saved anything at all. And you're just living on social security. Um, for the most part, I, I don't have much retirement anxiety, mostly because of the, the ability to uh, save and invest through the years. Um, but with regards to this D, uh, do-it-yourself um, mm-hmm. retirement crisis, um, most of my friends and peers of, from my age group, um, 
which I would refer to as the we're the last of the boomers. Okay. Um, we've all we've all been pretty prepared for this, right? We have worked um, we have worked in jobs that you know in in various uh, professional jobs um, that have provided us with um, some method of retirement income. I still even have a, a couple of friends that have pensions for crying out loud, and that's almost unheard of. Um, wow, yeah. And but most everybody else is, has invested in you know a four hundred one k or IRAs through the years, and we've prepared ourselves for this. Now the the next generation coming up um, takes a whole different view of that, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, some of those folks don't ever anticipate retiring. So um, I said all that to say, well, I forgot what my thought was. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, I just think that I just think that it it's not as much of a of a do it yourself um, crisis, retirement crisis, as maybe. Uh, the author, um, uh, Gillard Gillard is it Gillarducci? Mm -hmm. Yeah, not as much of a crisis as she said. I've read some of the other stuff that she's written. Yeah. And um, uh, there are some things that she has written that I really like. There are some other things that she's written as an economist that I think she's just nuts. Um, the <laughs> idea of a, the idea, well, that's with every, every author, right? Sure, There's sure, sure. There's nobody that we agree with 100%. You know, she, you know, she presented to the Trump administration this idea of, a retirement plan, where a pension, a government pension plan, where that your employer would pay two and a half percent, you would pay two and a half percent, and the government would guarantee you a re minimum return of two percent. Hmm. Well, that would be on top of the fifteen point nine percent that is paid into Social Security. So this right. would be something completely separate from Social Security. Yeah. Um, uh, if if I had to rely on two percent all of these years, even it, with compound interest, um. Hmm. You know, that would be, you know, hard. I, it's just, yeah. it, it would be really rough. It would be, yeah, exactly. It would be crazy. So uh, there's some other things that I like that she says, it, but I think that this is a, it, it seems to me, and I am always wrong. It seems to be <laughs> that this is a little bit of a, of a, there are people you can ask that will tell you that I'm always yeah. wrong. This is a little bit of a, a manufactured um, oh, crisis. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, a little bit of a manufactured crisis, just a little okay. bit. But okay. what do I know? I'm, you know, just a banker. <laughs> Jeff, when, uh, Jordan, so when Jordan said, uh, do you have a retirement anxiety? I'm like, at this point, Jeff has got work anxiety, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> the retirement's the easy part. <laughs> Caleb, Caleb will tell you that um, until just recently, I was counting uh, uh, my my countdown to retirements was my haircuts, the number of haircuts. I have left until I retire. Yeah. Okay. I have recently um, been asked to hang around a little longer, and so mm -hmm. I'm I'm I've been given new responsibilities. So I'll be sticking it out uh, for another year, maybe year and a half. A maybe we'll see what happens. How, yeah. How many yeah, haircuts, few more haircuts is that? <laughs> That's probably eighteen haircuts. Okay. Okay. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I I was reading a book. One of my roles at the university is dealing with the potential of crisis communication. So if stuff hits the fan who's the face that has to face the music um before the relations director you know, the journals <laughs> journalists uh, don't don't get to go right to the president and and there's something to that but as i was reading up and trying to get prepared for responding well and and measured because unfortunately people like us who are pastors we have too many words and so media relations you don't want to actually have too many words you want to be succinct and 
and uh, don't give them extra information. <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, and so as I was reading and prepping, uh, I, I stumbled upon a guy's uh, book, Ralph Gigalotti, and it's Crisis Leadership in Higher Education. But I, I find it really helpful even for the work that I do coaching pastors and churches, because uh, the way we speak about crisis uh, can actually be the way in which it generates. So if there's something that's happened, a situation that's happened, we can make it a crisis by just the way that we talk about it and address it and give it energy and focus. So in this instance, I actually kind of like uh, the fact that Gilarducci is creating a crisis, even if that isn't maybe as much of a crisis. And and Jordan and I have observed like a bunch of the conversations we've had with pastors, their retirement anxiety is lower. Uh, I don't think I've had a single interview person except maybe one person, mm-hmm. but even their response was fairly measured. Um, right. No one has responded to this question the way I expected right. uh, or the way in which we've come into the conversation with this, there is a crisis. Mm-hmm. Well, if there's a crisis, at least, you know, one or two of the people that we interview should be, you know, examples of that crisis. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so I think in this instance, I do like the idea of us as leaders calling attention to a crisis because of some factors we're going to talk a little bit more about mm-hmm. later. But this idea of the third age and, um, you know, a, a pastor being more than just useful for uh, the pulpit. And, and so, you know, we've talked a little bit about it already, people staying in ministry longer than they should have, because they didn't have an imagination for a retirement that was, um, you know, part of the kingdom and using their gifts in a kingdom way. And I actually think that preaching and being in some pulpits, because uh, I know some churches right now that are in like a hospice uh, state where once the core group passes and they're all over 70 um that church is no longer going to be there well who do they connect best with they connect best with someone who's in retirement age as a pastor sending a 22 year old right out of seminary is not going to be good for that church so i do think there's actually opportunities there for pulpit ministry uh in retirement but it shouldn't be the necessity. And that's where I guess I like the idea of using the crisis a little bit to create a shift in imagination, even if it's a little bit manufactured. Because um, I share your your concerns, Jeff, to some degree with some of the writing. But Okay, awesome. That's great. Great conversation so far. So let me go ahead and move on to question four, which is you've already kind of done this some already, but... Um, the question is, tell your story from the angle of retirement savings and being a pastor within Churches Christ. What have you not shared with us already that you think you could say and share? So when I um, started as a pastor, I had very little money available for retirement savings. Mm-hmm. Nothing, actually. At the time, I was making subsistence level wages, and uh, there was just enough to pay the rent, pay the utilities and buy the groceries, and pay the car insurance. And um, right. uh, I did develop a friendship, a relationship with a member of our congregation who was an insurance agent. And he was very concerned about my re- saving for retirement. And he's, you know, he made it clear on a number of occasions, Jeff, this is something that you need to, you know, think about. Right. And um, so uh, at, at some point, he sat me down and said, look, there's a, 
I just want to get you started with something. And he said, there is a, an annuity that if you will set aside some money and if you'll put, you know, some money into it, I'll match what you uh, have set aside and we'll get you into an annuity that you will not have to put any other money into and you can just let that, you know, grow. And so I squirreled away and came up with 500 bucks and he put 500 bucks in it. And um, it was a good, safe investment. And I will never forget that wow. gentleman's kindness you know, yeah. towards me. As a matter of fact, as I was thinking about this today, I uh, reached out to him on LinkedIn and I'm hoping, mm-hmm. and he's still an insurance agent. So I'm hoping to reconnect with him. That's great. But um, later when I worked you know, for a Christian university, they had a 401k plan and, and you know, I started investing then. Um, mm-hmm. and some 401k, 401k plans are, um, they're hit and miss, you know, some don't have a big offering of funds that you can invest in. Some have, a you know, a, a lot of different kinds of in, funds that you can, you know, invest in from aggressive to, you know, very conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, it, it's just important to, to do something, to start, uh, something and, um, and then, uh, for me, it's always been education, trying to understand exactly uh, what's going on, what my money's doing, that sort of thing. So trying to learn as much as I can about uh, retirement education uh, as I can uh, as, so that I can be prepared to make the right choices. Well, good stuff. Okay, what do you think, man? Yeah, I mean, when I was thinking about this, it, it just strikes me, for me, it's just it's a very much do-it-yourself it is a do-it-yourself thing. Like it's a thing you've yeah. got to educate yourself on and be aware of, you know, when yeah. it's framed within churches of Christ, you know, I never want to divorce churches of Christ as an entity from like the people. And so like, I was really blessed. I have a dad who's a business professor. And so he taught me about stuff when I was a kid. I have an aunt who's an accountant and, or works in accounting and bookkeeping. She taught me how the stock market worked when I was 10 or 11 years old, you know? Um, I have to say something about Ken Neller at Harding. He was amazing. I remember it wasn't called the Timothy club anymore. I think that term was passe by then, Jeff, but um, we had, you know, a thing like that for guys going into ministry. And I remember Ken Neller explaining, like, you guys have to understand compound interest. And because of it, you need to start saving today. And I will never forget. He gave us a lecture on never finance a car. That was his big, like, that was one of the things he was at. He was like, you buy the most expensive car that you can pay cash for. You save the car payment you would have had if you bought a different car. And then when that car dies, you buy the most expensive car you can afford. And he says, if you do it right, slowly but surely you will build up until you can buy a brand new car with cash. Because being Ken, he'd done it, you know, like over his life, over a couple of decades, he's got, did that system until he bought a $25,000 car. And then he told us what a terrible experience a brand new car was, but like, it was just like nuts and bolts. And I just remember him saying, you are not going to make enough money that you can be stupid with money. And so like, he sat us down and he taught us and trained us. And that's the way the church has provided for me is people that have given me those opportunities you know mm-hmm. um you know there's there was another experience we had where somebody in ministry encouraged us to talk to a advisor and it was the opposite i was like this guy's a crook by the time the whole thing was done right and so like 
it's been hit or miss, but generally it's godly people sharing what they know. And that's probably not a good enough system. I think Jordan, Mm. what you're talking about is a lack of systemic stuff, right? But key people at the right junctures, college professors doing that with their students, you know, like that's been my experience of how it's happened is people give a, given us the experience like that guy you mentioned, Jeff, people like reaching out and looking out for people is where it's happened. You know? Right. Lars, any thoughts? No, I, I think that's tremendous. I, I mean, the church at its best, right, um, right. is when we're yeah. connecting people together. And I mean, that honestly is what we're trying to do with this um, right. is get people in in the room where it happens, as you've okay. uh, said in the, in the introduction mm-hmm. many times. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's that's huge. And I, I don't think that Caleb's little aside there at the end should be understated. Like sometimes we're going to encounter moments where the church is not at its best. Mm-hmm. And um, so just because someone said, hey, this is my brother or this, you know, I've got a stack of business cards from relatives. And should I be handing those out? Right. You know, like maybe. Um, but maybe they need to prove themselves a little bit before I just say, hey, this is my friend. And uh you know, they, they're selling this. Um, so I think there's discernment needed and who was it the other day blanking on the person. So I don't want to take credit for this, but, uh, they were, they were saying the most important thing for the future is going to be discernment. Like that is the most important, uh, way in which we, and this wasn't a church conference I was at. Um, and I thought that is, that's what the church should be about too, is, discerning right and wrong and uh what's what's good and um what's useful and so yeah with our relationships especially um we should be hanging it out there and saying hey these are some people these are experts in my life not everybody has to be an expert but we should also be pretty confident that we we need to discern and and that's where i for me have just tried to figure out who are the two or three people that i'm pretty vulnerable with and and I actually sign this in a in a course that I do where I, I say, you got to go have a conversation, do your budget, um, you know, plus and minuses, what's coming in, what's going out, uh, do your uh, look at your savings, and then go have a conversation with a trusted friend, um, someone that you can be uh, transparent with. And the times that I've done that in my life, and, and those those people are involved, you know, at least once a year in in conversations about my finances um that's where real that's where the rubber meets the road and um but it's not easy we have to actually be vulnerable um with them right 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 great thanks all right so the following question is number five do you think being in churches of christ in your experience has hurt or helped your asset accumulation for retirement what do you think go ahead caleb i i i my answer would be, I don't think it's really affected it too much. Okay. Um, and the reason I say that, I mean, we've got a church with a lot of young professionals. I mean, maybe they all have these great matching plans that I, I haven't heard of, but mm-hmm. I think we're all pretty much, you know, corporate America has offloaded a lot of this responsibility onto their workers. And so, right. you know, like I don't have a match, but I don't think a lot of the people in my church have a match now anymore for their 401k either. So like, hmm. um, I don't think I'm in that as a millennial. Like, I just think most of my comrades are in the same, you know, space that I am. Um, so I, I don't think it's made a gigantic difference. 
uh, my wife, you know, works in the secular world and they're not providing her a whole lot more retirement wise than what I'm getting at church, you know? So I don't feel like I I haven't felt like I've lost that much, but. Okay. Interesting um, perspective. Yeah. From the standpoint of uh, ministers as a whole in the churches of Christ, I think because we have not had any sort of overarching denominational hierarchy to organize health plans and retirement plans. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that 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 is that has hurt us um, to a, a large degree because um, there would be people that would be able to not have to preach until the day that they die. Right. Right. Um, uh, I uh, am affiliated with the United Church of Christ. I uh, work with and, and minister with a, a UCC church here, and they have a wonderful uh, 403B plan for uh, for UCC ministers that, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's it's fantastic. And they have a great health care program for mm-hmm. their ministers. And, you know, there are lots of disadvantages to having a denominational uh, hierarchy, but then there are also some advantages, just big trades off trade-offs that, yeah. um, you know, we don't think about because of, you know, where we came from, you know, um, as I was actually talking with my, uh, our full, our pastor today. And I said, look, I said, how do you feel about your, I just, in, in reference to this conversation, I said, how do you feel about, you know, your retirement? Yeah. Cause he's probably 50, he's probably 51 or 52, I think maybe 55. Okay. And he said, you know, I'm, I have no, I have no anxiety at all. Oh, that's a great place to be. Yeah. 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 It's, um, yeah. Campbell's deconstruction. Like, you know, he was like, he looked at the hierarchy. He's like, there's too many problems, especially with money. Let's do away with it. So he can deconstruct all that, what he was used to back in the UK. And, and he created kind of new problems as a result of that. Um, and uh, some good things and some bad things that came about because of his new ecclesiology for Churches of Christ. Um, let's see. Any other thoughts, guys, on that one? Any other thoughts? Okay, let's move on to the next question then. Um, question number six, I believe, is what we're on. What do you feel are the challenges to save for retirement as a pastor in Churches of Christ? And also, what are the perceived benefits as a pastor in the churches of Christ. Let's start with challenges and then benefits. What do you think? Um, for the most part, you know, churches pay a pastor what they can. And and that, that is just not enough. Um, mm-hmm. I thought your uh, information in the, that you sent to us with regards to the church of Christ say that James Knapp did mm-hmm. and his conclusions. I thought his conclusions were right on the money. Yeah. 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 When I found those again, those are the the only two academic studies done that I could find. And he's even aware of in terms of retirement realities of Church of Christ pastors. And and that's an issue in and of itself. You know, it's the lack of system that we've been mentioning. Um, But yeah, those are those are some good stuff. So, Caleb, what do you think? I think when it comes to pastor challenges in Churches of Christ, just the things that I've seen, uh, the one is the parsonage. Right. Like the parsonage sounds so great to a lot of folks, but it kills your ability to build equity. And that like matters, you know, like your rent going towards you every month versus going, you know, someone else every month is a big deal. And so I think parsonages have kind of handicapped people in a way they didn't realize until they were 10 years later and, you know, didn't realize they lost compared to their, you know, friends that don't have them. 
Mm-hmm. Um, in Churches of Christ, there was like this real boom of social security opt-outs, I could right. tell, with older guys. Mm-hmm. The amount of guys I know older than me that are now ruining that or like mm. getting secular jobs just to earn enough quarters so that they can get some social security mm-hmm. and are upset about that choice. Yeah. I just think, I don't know, somebody back in 1965 was really doing people a disservice with the way they talked about that. You don't have to go um, back that far. <laughs> right. I, I'm just yeah. trying to guess. We, ages. Have a, we have a mutual friend, Caleb, that is in that very situation. Oh, um, yeah. Who's trying to work secular job um, in order to get enough quarters so that he'll have Social Security. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I, I see those as really a lot of the, the the two challenges I've seen that really handicapped people that are a bit older than me and has frustrated mm-hmm. them. You know, as far as the advantages, you yeah. know, it, it's a pastor thing. The housing allowance can be a beautiful thing. You it know, can. like we get our health insurance through Obamacare. It looks to Obamacare as if I don't make much money because right. my housing allowance isn't part of my AGI. And so mm-hmm. like knowing the way that system works and how to take advantage of that and the tax benefits of that and the fact that you've got, you know, the rare double dip with your mortgage interest plus, mm. you know, your housing allowance. Those are those are positive things. I think my tax world is a more frustrating to fill out but okay. more advantageous to me world than my secular. Friends, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I think that's always been the case um, for ministers is, is that um, uh, again, not having uh, uh, someone to help walk you through that, having to learn all of that information that can be really overwhelming uh, to understand the, the tax implications of a housing allowance or not a housing allowance. Um, being able to to take advantage of the um, the uh, you know the things that are out there that will you know lower your income so mm-hmm. that you know you are able to you know get good health care um, right. that's a that's a real difficult thing for folks um, who uh, you know they may be uh, you know out there on their own and uh, they have an accountant who is uh, in their congregation who insists you know that they need to uh, they need to be issued a W-2 um, and, you know, it, it's, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Okay. Uh, good thoughts. Next question then. Um, question number seven, what have you found to be the greatest help uh, in general in terms of saving for retirement as a pastor? All right. So I have something, I hope it's not too controversial. Um, so for me, it's really important. You have a plan and you stick to it. But the big, biggest help to us is to have an interruptible plan. Okay. Because the reality is, if as a minister, the likelihood that you might get fired, <laughs> it's there. And the chance that you're going to have a baby or something, you know, like we Life have a happens. plan of what we're going to do every month. But if something happens and we have to pause for a month, we can. And with what we have, we don't lose anything. Okay. Um, The worst financial stuff that we got into was something that was supposed to help us and was, you know, suggested as a plan. I still see it suggested a lot, but it required a large monthly payment. And mm-hmm. if you miss those payments, you lost it. Like your money was gone. Mm. And you'll know, you would know what I was talking about if I was not so elliptical, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, the thing is, like we had a baby and my wife went on maternity leave and we decided we wanted her to stay home. And that payment wasn't 
possible anymore. And so we lost six to nine months of starting this instrument because we needed a pause and we couldn't. And I would say you need to find something that like, you know, what I love about making my contributions to the IRA, I try to make them every month, but if a month comes up where I can't, I don't lose a dime by just skipping a month. And I think pastors need that ability to, to do that. You don't want to skip months. It's not good, but like you need something that can sit dormant for a season if you get laid off or if the church downsizes or, Mm -hmm. you know, if there's some other, you know, family emergency or you have a baby, I just think that's a big deal is something that can be stopped and started easily so that you can keep your, keep building what you're building. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Jeff? Um, I hope this is not too controversial. Oh, Hey, we like controversy. But, uh, you know, tent making, Mm. I mean, it is the blueprint, right? Right. If you're going to talk about blueprints, it's the blueprint that is endorsed and an honorable way to work with churches. Uh, Most employers offer health care. They offer retirement benefits to full-time employees. And many employers offer some kind of benefit to part-time employees. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I honestly think that as we, uh, as we continue to move forward into, uh, in over the next 20 years, uh, as churches are unable to really truly support full-time pastors in a way that they should be supported, mm-hmm. um, that this is going to be become more of, and more of the model. And I don't think it should be looked at as, um, uh, well, that's, I could do that if I had to, but if I want to be a real pastor or if mm. I want to be a real preacher, I've got to do it full time. Where That's Christendom talking, uh, I guess. <laughs> right, exactly. It's but if you are in the workplace, right? Where do you have a better opportunity to to be a light? Where do you have a better opportunity to be leaven? Um and and to really put into practice the things that you would say in the pulpit on Sunday to all the folks that are out there in the workplace, right? But mm-hmm. they can look at you and say, well, he's just the preacher. He he doesn't really experience life the way that I experience. But somebody who is tent making can do that. They can say, you know, I'm out there mixing it up with the hoi polloi all the time. Yeah. And Jeff, I'll just add, I don't think you even know this, Jeff. I now do like 10 hours a week of a different thing. <laughs> Um, for a variety of reasons, like we kind of needed to do it, but as Jeff has said, I just think it's the future too. I mean, mm-hmm. I think full-time for most churches, you're going to be less than a hundred people and you're not going to be able to afford a full-time guy right. and doing something else is going to be part of it. Um, also, you know, you're a spouse working can be a big deal. My wife's gone back to work. Yeah, we've been able to save as much as we've had in part because of her work. Mm-hmm. It helps that she really likes it. You know, she enjoys what she does, but the, you know, I don't know. I grew up where we're single, you know, single paternal, like, you know, money earner kind of household. And I always feel a little bad that she has to work in my head, Yeah, but I just think that's a little caveman of me a little bit. Like, I think she thinks it's a little caveman of me that's and, um, yeah, man, just down with the patriarch. Exactly. So that's that's been a piece too, you know, like realizing that dual income mm. really in our society makes a big difference and it's important. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. All right, good stuff. Absolutely.
So shifting gears now to theology, um, what do you feel in question A? What do you feel is the theological or ethical ideal in terms of saving for a living and retirement? I don't know if you already had like this thing worked out in your mind of like, this is how I understand money and saving for retirement or not, or if you skipped ahead and you read chapter three on my theology chapter, but what do you, what do you think? How do you think about this? I mean, when I was younger, I, I didn't think I even really cared to retire, particularly in ministry. Cause part of it was like, I could do this a long time. Like, yeah. you know, I talk for a living mostly. And so that should be something I should do for a while. Um, I think what has changed in my mind is not so much that I would get to a place where I wouldn't work. Cause I really am a believer. Like Adam worked in the garden, right? Like work is a core human mm-hmm. thing that we do. I think what's more exciting to me is decoupling my ability to survive from the work that I do. Right. Like to me, that's what retirement is about is taking the paycheck and the work and separating them so that I can do the work I feel God's calling me to do and not the work that's going to pay a mortgage. So to me, that sort of is theologically, ethically where I want to go. I want to someday get to a place where I can choose the work that God has called me to instead of the work that'll pay a bill. Right. And that is something I can get behind more than like, oh, I want to have a vacation forever. As I've yeah. gotten older, though, vacation does sound, or, uh, vacation. <laughs> retirement sounds better. <laughs> As I've aged, just in the last year or two, I've been like, you know, retirement might actually be kind of nice. <laughs> but that's the stereotypical view of retirement we're trying to teach against, man. Yeah. 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 <laughs> what do you want well, to be on a golf course, Jordan? So just, you know. You know, I haven't golfed in so many years and just particularly because it's so expensive. It's like, man, I really wish I could play golf man yeah so retirement playing golf in retirement does sound pretty good jeff what do you think how do you think about this theologically i the other piece that is the ethical idea in terms of um saving for a living for retirement and and i think that the 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 ethical thing is for the church to agree to take care of the pastor after years of service if you reach uh a point in service, let's say 25 years, that, you know, that in some form or fashion, the church agrees that this person has been faithful to them, they have provided um, nourishment for them all of those years, and that, um, you know, either buying them a home or providing them long-term supplemental income, you know, in some form or fashion is is the ethical right thing to do. It, um, you know, it boggles my mind uh, i've been a part of congregations that had large you know a, a large corporate contingent of you know middle managers and executives that um they um they would never work for an employer under the same uh, salary and benefits conditions that um that they require somebody who preaches for them to work under right right um because um that they're they're smarter than that uh, and they they just would not they would not do that. And so I think that um, uh, I know of one in one case in where the, the 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 pastor has retired and serves as the pastor emeritus at his congregation and his, his church, you know, helps to take care of him uh, and that has helped to ensure that his retirement will be a good one. It won't be one where he is worried or concerned. And he's able to do, he's able to continue to help 
with things at that church. Um, he is able to uh, read. He is able to study. He is able to to write. And um, so, you know, I have a uh, I have a yellow tablet of things that I've about half filled out, um, about halfway down the page of things that I want to do when I'm done, when I'm done working at the bank, you know, um, and, you know, at the top of the list is, you know, for at least a year or two, I want to deliver meals on wheels just so I can be out in the community and being of service to folks in our community. And, and I've got, you know, um, I've got an interest in food insecurity and hunger issues. And, and so I want to be able to help out in that way. And there, you know, drivers are desperately needed here. So, you know, there's a whole list of things that I want to do that, as, as uh, Caleb said, it's not, um, you know, I don't want to just sit around, I, but I want to do the things mm-hmm. that uh, help me, encourage me. Um, I'm, uh, I want to write more. I, 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 you know, I write some, and so I want to continue to do that. And, and so I've, uh, in the next 18 months, I'm sort of plotting out the, the things that I, I want to write about and, uh, you know, thinking about those things. Um, so that when I'm ready to be done, I'm doing the things that I want to do that uh, are of service, not just to me, but of the kingdom itself. Great. That's awesome. Does that answer the question at all? It totally does. It totally does. Lars, did you want to say something? Oh, I just, I love uh, giving some teeth to the vision of retirement, right? So Mm -hmm. how you're seeing um, the resources that you have, your passions, what what you care about, and your capacity, your physical capacity, and then your time capacity. And, and I think that's what I want to help pastors imagine is that uh, their passion and their time and their physical capacity can come together in service of God's kingdom in ways beyond, um, you know, their, their current job right now. And I, and I think sometimes this is what happens, right? And you probably, Jeff, have done this with clients or at least with friends. Um, why are you working? Well, you're working to make money so that you can make money and spend it on what? Like, you know, at some point we need to ask ourselves, what are, why are we making money? And is, is that making money um, actually fulfilling our mission and, and what we actually care about? And I, and I think it can be really insidious um in churches sometimes like well wait a second are you still called to the ministry you know like you're calling and churches of christ have not been the best at discerning our call and connecting that um we've been a little more practical and pragmatic and so you know it's hard sometimes to sit down with somebody and say did why did you get into ministry you know and, and honestly i had this wrestle you know moment because i was going to youth rallies and some of the youth ministers or they weren't youth ministers, but they were youth leaders at churches. I mean, it was a joke what we were doing. And I thought I can do better. Well, I could do better is not a super compelling calling into ministry. No. And, uh, and, and luckily for me, part of my program at Fuller was all about discerning God's call and formation of the, the, the pastor. And so I really grabbed on to a calling that's different, but but for me, Jeff, that's led into, you know, working outside the church as my day job and then serving the church in a different way. Um, but I, yeah, I think for retirement, we better have a call. We better have a something stronger than I could do better on the golf course, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I love I love hearing yours a little bit fleshed out because I think that that helps people, under, you know, paint their own picture of retirement. 
Totally, totally. That's uh, what you had to say, Jeff and and Kale. Rings uh, reminds me of what um, one of the authors that uh, discusses uh, the retirement as the uh, the third age. You know, of how not to see retirement as kind of like that stereotypical view, Americanized view of retirement of thirty year withdrawal and vacation, but rather the last thirty year of life. Of how my how can I in this last third of my life differently and and, and more so perhaps even uh, honor and glorify God and how I choose to live. Um, yeah. And so uh, good stuff. Good stuff. And, and, and you'll be lucky if it's the last third of your life, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's assuming if you'll you live. retire. If, if you retire between 62 and 65, or in your case, some of you uh, when you're 67, um, mm-hmm. if you retire at that age, I was gonna say, at the right. rate they're going, Congress is gonna make it 76, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the th- here's the th- you know, the, and this is the thing that when I talk to folks, this is that, um, you know, there is absolutely no guarantee of tomorrow, mm-hmm. so you have to live as if you're. I live, you know, w- with joy each day that I have a job that I go to that I actually love. Mm-hmm. And I enjoy the, I love the people that I work with. And, um, and so uh, I, it's not going to be a big transition for me when I, when it comes time to say goodbye to the people at the bank, um, because, you know, it's going to give me lots of opportunities to, to continue to serve. And, and so thinking about that ahead of time is really important, but understanding that, you know, um, uh, we, no, no, none of us have any guarantees that we're going to, we're going to make it to retirement. None of us have any guarantees that we're going to live more than 10 years after we retire, which I think is just about the average. People make it to about 74, 75, I think is right now the uh, the, the average age uh, uh, in of, of death uh, for men in the United States is like 74, 75 years old. So, yeah. I mean, you might have 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Make the best yeah. of them. No, it's a good thought. That's a good thought. So we're getting into close, closely wrapping up. We got two more questions <laughs> to go. And um, question nine, I, I want to word it this way: uh, word it more towards churches. What, what do you, what have churches done well? But what, what do they need to do differently moving forward? We've already kind of touched on it a little bit, but let's focus on it right here. What, what have they done well? But what do they really need to do differently moving forward? Um. The, the terms of service uh, should be spelled out clearly, and uh, I hate to even say it, but they should be spelled out contractually, and the churches take responsibility for whatever portion of, of a pastor's retirement that they can. Uh, many, as I said before, many churches have executives, they have middle management folks that would not accept a position with an organization that didn't provide some minimum benefits that often are not provided for pastors and preachers. One of the churches that I served in in the early 90s had three HR uh, managers, middle managers in that organization. Mm -hmm. And none of them reviewed my contract for the church before I signed it, before the church, after the church wrote it. And um, when I showed them that, they looked at me like I was nuts. (laughs) And so three years later, when it came time to renew our agreement, two of those folks who were still in the church helped me negotiate. That's awesome. Because they still weren't, they still weren't on the committee helped me negotiate a new contract with the, with the church, a new agreement with the church. Mm. And um, so I think that um, 
going into it a little, I, I think most people today go into it a little smarter. Um, they have a little bit of a, of a broader understanding of what it takes uh, and, um, and what's necessary. Uh, we do a lot more, um, I, at least I think, we probably do a lot more um, research before we, we go to someplace like Providence, Rhode Island and try to establish a, you know, a new work there. We know, we know what the cost of living is, what the expenses are. We, we, we have a better understanding. We're, we're doing things logistically, we're doing them better. And so I, you know, I think that's important. Okay, great. Caleb, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's hard from a church perspective. Um, you know, I think I generally just say, just pay people more. <laughs> like there's part of me that wants to come up with like some sort of special fangled idea. Like, you know, you should do some sort of matching program, but I know how it works. If you offer so much in matching, it's going to come out of the overall salary package. So like, yeah. I kind of like being treated like an adult, like just let me make my own decisions. But I think churches just have to be more realistic. Um, I think there's a habit of church members of looking at the pastor's salary and comparing it to their take-home check, which is a really silly thing to do sure. because the pastor's salary includes all those taxes that are top off their check before it gets home. And mm -hmm. a lot of cases, the health insurance that they pay for before they take it home and retirement or 401k or matches or whatever they have. And I just think, um, I just think churches aren't realistic about that. You know, like they don't realize that we're giving this guy one salary and that's everything that's housing, that's income, uh, food, that's retirement, that's health insurance, that's kids, baseball cleats, you know, like mm -hmm. I just, I just don't think churches are realistic about what that is, you know? Yeah. So, okay. Good thought. Good thought. Lars, anything on that one? Oh, I've shared some wild ideas in the, in past episodes. Um, yeah. And so not to sound contradictory to myself, but I, I kind of like Caleb's uh, <laughs> observation. Like one of the, my boss who was at a large church there in um, Saratoga next to where Jordan lives and you know, it was a very large, very wealthy Silicon Valley church mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. And they, it's not as large now, but, um, but he, he said they paid him so well that he didn't have a, uh, you know, a budget basically. He didn't have a reimbursements for mm -hmm. taking church members out to dinner. They just paid him so much that they wanted him to be able to take people out to coffee mm -hmm. and to dinner and, um, to invite people over to their home and to feel like they could host people without um, it being a burden. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the times the churches I served at is like, what is that budget? How big can I make that budget? You know, how can I use different, you know, youth group budget for this and um, you know, different things and my minister housing allowance and, and all these different things to, to kind of eke out a way in which to be hospitable um, so, yeah, I like the idea of maybe saying, let's be more realistic about our salary. Let's not just look at what teachers are being paid, but let's think about how to increase that in a way that takes into the fact that we want these people to feel hospitable, that they can actually invite others into their life and into their you know behaviors and play in traffic. So this is where the fundraising world that I'm in now uh, in my role at, at the university like we pay money so that we're at functions where we get to 
encounter our donors and, and alumni and other people that we know care about our mission. So they see that we're caring about other people's mission. So I play in the Young Life Golf Tournament just <laughs> for that fact. And it's fun. But the university pays for me to go play golf. Um, and then hopefully I get to invite some people to the to the one that benefits our university. But but I think, you know, what is it that we want pastors to be involved in in their community? And uh, and retirement, I think, plays into that. Right. We we don't want them retiring as uh, destitute because we want them to care for people who are. Uh, retiring as well. And and we don't want them to begrudge that. Um, so yeah, I think there's, I think that idea of kind of, we can be big, big people and, and make decisions ourselves. And, um, but I also like some of the other crazy ideas that we've talked about. So Caleb, maybe you'll have to listen to a couple of the other episodes and give us some feedback. So we had some matching ideas yeah. and some other mm-hmm. things that were, um, yeah, I think mm-hmm. interesting. And, and I'm hoping that as this uh, project comes to a close that some of the stuff Jordan and I get to do after this is to to kind of articulate some of these ideas for churches and pastors um, that that are you know maybe uh, repeatable for some of those churches that are kind of lone wolves so that you know Jeff right the same idea it's like it's like your HR professionals uh, don't you wish that they had created a white paper that the church could have used as the starting you know, starting point. And that's where I think some of these retirement ideas, it'd be pretty easy to articulate um, something that other churches could use as a starting place. Yeah. Nice. No, good thoughts. Good thoughts. All right. So final question We're as we wrap up. Um, so what would you tell a new pastor or pastor in training about saving for retirement while in ministry before they make the dive in? Um, Caleb, said it earlier already and that is is that you know compound interest is everything it's attributed to einstein but i'm not sure that he said it but he said that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world (laughs) and he who understands it earns it and he who doesn't pays it and and, um, so start saving even small amounts squirreling away you know something in a sock until you get enough to put you know into the bank whatever it is just start anywhere. Just start saving a little bit, and um, you know, and and then getting it into something. Um, you know, my um, as we said before, the the um, the important thing here is education, and um, so uh, having a, an investing strategy is important. Having an, a, a plan, like Caleb said, is important. Uh, early on, I started reading everything that I could. Uh, and um, one of the places that was is was fantastic then and is still an incredible resource is, you know, Vanguard uh, Investments. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, it, the information that they have out there for the first time, just getting started, you've only got a buck to invest, one dollar. Um, they'll get you started and they'll mm-hmm. they're absolutely the best in retirement savings education. And uh, for someone who wants to control their own destiny. Uh, with regards to their retirement funds, I would absolutely recommend, uh, you know, going out to the Vanguard site and looking at what they have and, and just within a minimal amount of money, you can start, you know, putting some stuff away into, you know, very safe, very good uh, uh, funds that mm-hmm. will, um, you know, that are, that are fantastic, that are, that are broad in and of themselves in the things that they're invested in so that, you know, no matter what the market fluctuations are, 
you're still going to, you're still going to earn something. Okay. Got it. Awesome. Caleb, what do you think, man? Yeah. I mean, the two things I've got, uh, again, I feel like real old fashioned with this, but you know, real estate matters, you know, like owning a home, we put 25 to 33% of our income, most of us into our house at the, you know, you can really get in trouble if you get, if you buy and sell at the wrong time. But generally if you buy a house at the very least, that mortgage payment is kind of a savings account payment, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and at the best it's an investment and it's an investment versus throwing something down the toilet if you rent. And so hey. I just think that's really big. <laughs> it's, it's safe. It allows you to, and I know down payments are hard and all that stuff. That would be an idea of, you know, a church ministry that helps provide down payments to ministers so they can buy instead of rent. That'd be huge. But anyway, like, I just think it's a big deal for overall wealth accumulation and assets to own a house. And for us, you know, our house will be paid off God willing by the time we're about 50. And Mm -hmm. that gives us then another 15 year run to then put a lot more money away for retirement. You know, you want it on the front end, but I just, I don't know. I think it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the other thing is kind of counterintuitive to these conversations. I think we really should be better about living simply too. Like mm-hmm. we always talk about how you build the nest egg on the back end, but if you learn how to live on less, it helps with like both the supply and the demand <laughs> squeeze of retirement, right? Like there's more money for retirement and you need less on the back if you just live simply. And I, I just don't think that when we talk about this stuff, there's enough discussion about downward mobility, downsizing, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. don't get any bigger of a house than you need. Our kids always feel like they're cramped too bad. <laughs> like we have plenty of house for them, you know, a, a, just the nice enough car. Like I was talking mm-hmm. about earlier, like, those sorts of things are spiritual disciplines that help you as be a better person, mm-hmm. but they're also going to make saving. And then what you need saved for both to be so much easier, you know, like it just lowers the level of difficulty. If we just learn to be simple people that don't need as much. Um, and that's the thing I wish I did better, right? Like that's the big growth curve. If I could le- learn to be a simpler man in 20 mm-hmm. years, retirement's going to be even easier and better than, it would be right now, you know? Yeah. I feel like I have a very uh, minimalistic personality and lifestyle um, and living in the Silicon Valley, you know, driving every day next to Porsches and Teslas and you name it. It's kind of like, whoa, very stark contrast. Uh, oh, yeah. And so, but that's, that's definitely for Christians in the Silicon Valley Bay area. It's kind of a, that's a struggle, I would say um, living around so much wealth. Um, yeah, but those are good. Those are good. Uh, good thoughts, man. Good thoughts, guys. Uh, Lars, do you have anything that kind of, uh, building off of what they just said in terms of what you think, uh, we should say to, um, pastors, uh, who are preparing to go in the ministry? Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that, um, just came up this weekend as I was preaching on James chapter five, one through six. So if you're looking for a sermon this is a great text i've never heard a sermon on it before um because typically we include more of james and so we talk about being patient and suffering and some other things that are kind of classic james but in this one he talks about weeping and wailing because you're rich and um it's fascinating stuff but i i do i do think that we have a 
an upward mobility problem and uh, and the call of Jesus and really throughout the Gospels and something that I was looking at how James is building on that. It's kind of a forgotten thing that Jesus seems to say over and over again, get rid of, sell all your possessions, weep, woe is you, you know, um, and uh, and don't be afraid, little flock in, in Luke uh, 12, I think it is. Um, and he kind of breaks the the frame fourth frame or whatever and looks at the congregation and sell your possessions give to the poor and um and i think pastors that's one thing that that i don't think we talk all that much about um is charitable giving and like there's kind of an assumption that we're giving 10 percent in tithing because we're going to preach on tithing but like where does charitable giving and i think retirement planning i mean i know jeff you probably deal with that too it's like as we as we're wa- working with people who are wealthy, retirement planning and charitable giving often go hand in hand. And sometimes our retirement planning can be a great way. Um, you know, if you have a, a 401k or an IRA and you have to take um, the distributions, the required distributions when you reach a retirement age, 72 or something like it that, is 72. Um, that can be a great way to give. Well, churches don't often tap into that um, because we're not often talking to people about anything beyond their weekly tithe. But, um, but you know, I think that's something for pastors to think about too. As you're saving, as you're thinking about your compensation uh, early on in the compounding interest, that's also going to be a vehicle for you to give and to be part of charitable giving. And um, so if you haven't thought about how you want to give, not just of your time and efforts, but of, of monetary things. Um, and I think retirement planning and some of these other saving things, you got to get started on at some point. And, and like Caleb was saying, live simply. If you aren't giving something away now, you probably won't give something away. You'll just continue to build a more complicated life that spends all that you make anyway. Um, so yeah, we've got to start giving some percentage now to learn those habits so that later we can give you know the same percentage but a larger amount that's significant um so that's something that i think again my fundraising experience that i never thought i would be in um has taught me some things that i i uh i wish i had known earlier in in ministry but now is the time to start you know it's like best time to plant a tree 20 years ago next best time is today so let's let's do it today all right. I um, I um, would totally agree with um, uh, with both Lars and Caleb about living simply. However, I will confess that there was a time when I loved a beautiful car. You know, mm-hmm. I just <laughs> and you're you're gonna laugh, but for me, the prettiest, the most beautiful, the the coolest car I ever had was a 1984 silver Oldsmobile Tornado. With a <laughs> leather interior with a leather interior it was a coupe two-door oh it was a fine automobile I but i will tell you that your values begin to change and so today my work car is a 15 year old tacoma the toyota oh. tacoma pickup truck with two hundred thousand miles on it right yeah. um, because it it's it, it gets essentially it gets you from point a to point b and back again with yeah. the the least amount of investment right and the least amount of upkeep so, right. I, well, I'm, and, go ahead. Yeah. I've got. Well, a, I was just going to say, I've got a uh, a 22 year old Nissan Frontier truck that's a two door, 
And right now my kids are squeezing in the back in those bucket seats that sit sideways. I'm like, I really want a newer Toyota Tacoma four door truck to help take them camping. As that's uh, what I have. Other things. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. What were we gonna say, Caleb? Oh, I was just gonna say, Lars. I, I think you pointed something people don't think about, but like that giving muscle and the saving savings muscle are not that different, right? It's like giving mm-hmm. up something today, either for someone else or for something down the road. And I think people who are good at saving are probably pretty good at giving and people who are good at giving are probably pretty good at saving. And so like the way that connects, you know, you ask, what do you do at the start? You know, in college, they taught us this again. And like, I'm so glad we did it. When we got married, we said 10% we're going to give, but then every time we've gotten a pay raise, it's a little more. So at first it was like 10% plus $10, right? Or, and then another pay raise, it's 10% plus $20. And then maybe it turned into 11%. But like, you know, like if you learn how to just do that, you know, it's just boiling the frog, man. Like the way that we were able to give what we give is just that we started young when 10% of almost nothing was, you know, almost really nothing. And if you do that early on, like it's so much easier than to live 10 years without giving. And then all of a sudden you're going to jump to 10%. That's impossible. You if I have to start, I mean, it's not impossible. All things are possible with God. Right. But like, mm-hmm. the, it's just start early. Like if you're young, that's a huge thing. Start the, both the savings and the giving do it early because you're not 10% of that crummy paycheck is not that much. And so it helps you figure it out early, you know? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, hey guys, thank you very much for jumping on here and uh, having this uh, discussion with us tonight. I know it's getting pretty late out there on the East Coast. Oh, it's only 7.40, so you're not doing too bad. But thanks, Caleb. Thanks, Jeff. Um, thanks, Lars, for uh, recording this, this 14th episode of 16 here on the Almost Essential podcast. And we thank you guys for listening and watching as well. Uh, we hope uh, you find some value in this uh, series of podcast episodes that we've created uh, to help Church of Christ pastors with accumulating assets retirement, but hopefully not beyond them, just also church leaders and anybody in general listening along. So guys, uh, we will see see you next time in episode 15. Until then, we'll see you later. Bye. Once again, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Almost Essential Podcast. If you like what you heard, and you want to reach out, you can connect with me, Jordan Koss, on Facebook or Instagram. We hope this series is a valuable resource for you, pastor or otherwise. And remember, you are not almost essential. Your role and service in the church is essential, as well as saving for retirement within your holy vocation and calling.